for Jesus Christ and His willingness to give up Himself for our sake so that uh, we could have life that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. And we recognize that all will bow to Him one day in acknowledgement of His worth, His greatness. And uh, Lord, we bow ourselves to Him now in submission to Him as He is revealed in the Word. And so we pray that You'd help us to uh, live in light of what He's done for us, the love that He's shown to us. May we be lovers of Him uh, as He loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for praying for our family as we were away. We prayed for you as well. Um, and we are glad to be back safely. We had uh, four or five inches of snow there in Chicago on Monday when we were planning to come back, so we ended up staying another day and having a little bit more fun. Um, we did something that uh, that I hadn't done in about 20-some years. went to medieval times. If you ever get an opportunity to do that, it's a great night of dinner and entertainment. It's a theater setting, so they have live jousting and uh, a huge theater production that goes on two hours straight of, of uh, all sorts of action. And uh, so that was our um, reward for, for having to endure another day of snow. So you, the snow that, that you missed on, on that last Monday was the snow that we got. So um, thank you for praying for us. All right, well, we want to uh, continue our study here on defending the faith uh, that we, we started a couple of weeks ago. And the main idea from the first class is stated for you there, that ideas matter, that, that how we think matter, matters, and it determines, um, it determines what we're, we're going to, to um, perceive about things, and it per- determines what we will say and do. And last time in our application, we ended on the note of perseverance. If our hearts, souls, and minds are rightly oriented to Jesus and grounded in a biblical worldview, we can have that grand mark of the Christian that we persevere in the faith uh, all the way to the end to the praise of God's glory. But what I want to do here uh, before we get into the material for today, which is kind of an introduction to philosophy, is to uh, just kind of uh, recap some of the ideas that... that uh, that I had uh, had brought up last time, but didn't explain very clearly. And I brought in the book that I'm recommending, and I have a, a little section I printed out for you that I'm going to hand out to you at the end of class. Uh, this is Greg Bonson's book, Always Ready, uh, based on the idea that First Peter 3.15, that we always need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have within us. And he is an excellent defender of the faith, and I think he does it from the right perspective. And what I was arguing last time was that we cannot have neutral ground when we talk to anyone about anything. There's no such thing as neutral ground, because what we tend to do is we tend to say, you know, um, if we're going to talk to unbelievers, we need to come on some kind of neutral ground where nobody really knows yet what's going on, and so... We can't really determine what the real truth is until we both kind of just start out with, with kind of a, a, a mushy-brained type of idea. Like, we don't really have any idea of what is what. Okay, so then now we're on neutral ground. Now let's start taking some steps of logic that will help us. 
And uh, the problem, he says, is that Colossians 2, 3-8 through 8 teach us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid in Christ. So, if we try to start on neutral ground, we have actually given up ground to the unbeliever. We've said that, that it, you know, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are not hidden in Christ. Okay? Uh, it, we, we need how to, to somehow start from this neutral ground and then move to where we want to go. And, and in doing so, we actually, um, we've actually given ourselves over. He, he, says, he says it this way, By attempting to be neutral in your thought, you are a prime target for being robbed by a vain philosophy. That is, that, that, that you have bought into the idea of what Paul calls crafty speech or vain philosophies that are out there. That, that in order to try to, to stand on the same ground with these unbelievers, you've given up ground. And he goes on to say, um, let me just uh, read page 13 here. Um, it follows from these points that the Christian who strives for neutrality and the world of thought is not neutral and in danger of unwittingly endorsing assumptions that are hostile to his Christian faith, while imagining that his intellectual neutrality is compatible with a Christian confession, such a believer is actually operating in terms of unbelief. If he refuses to presuppose the truth of Christ, he invariably ends up presupposing the outlook of the world. So, that this is what I was trying to explain last time, and that is that that we can't come to a conversation with an unbeliever with no preconceived ideas. We all have to come with our preconceived worldviews, ideas, uh, presuppositions, is what it's often called in in the study of apologetics. We have to come with our presuppositions that God is, and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. And so our job as defenders of the faith is to do this. Page 24, he says, we must think God's thoughts after Him. This is a phrase that my, my uh, theology professor would use often. This is, this is your job in the Christian life. Think God's thoughts after Him. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we think God's thoughts after Him? Okay, where do His thoughts come from? Okay, or where do we draw them from, right? We draw them from the Word. So, so we think God's thoughts after Him. That's why the Scriptures are foundational to apologetics and to all of our discussions with unbelievers. We can't come to them on neutral ground and say, hey, you know, let's, let's just start out on the same plane and then let's start working our way. Because actually what's happening is they're not standing on neutral ground either. They're coming to you with preconceived ideas that are actually opposed to God and in some cases borrowed from the Christian worldview. And we need to find there are some common things. Okay, there's common ground. Okay, what what do you think the common ground would be? We talked about this a little bit last time, but what would the common ground be? Different from neutral ground. Neutral is, you know, there's no right or wrong. There's no absolutes. What would the common ground be, though? What what would we both agree on? What does Romans one say that everybody knows? Everyone knows that God exists. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. There's the common ground. Okay? Everyone knows that God exists. 
So uh, while you may not have neutral ground, uh, you certainly have common ground. One more uh, little section here. I uh, I was considering uh, about putting this on the book of the month list for next month. I initially looked at it and thought, you know, this might be a little bit too too heavy. And if you want to get it, you know, I, I, I gave you the, it's on the back of your handout. You can look it up and, and buy it yourself. But I think I actually will offer it uh, for the book of the month. One thing I love about this book is the chapters are really short. Look at this. This is chapter 9. And then two pages later, chapter 10. So so if you're if you're kind of have those little goals, uh, have those little goals like I often do when I'm reading, okay, I just need to read one more chapter, then uh, this is the book for you. Um, so here's how he concludes. He says, The conclusion of this line of thought is forcefully evident. There can be no neutral ground between believer and unbeliever, between obedience and rebellion, between respecting and abusing that which belongs to God, which is what? What belongs to God? Everything. And so he says, no one can serve two masters. There's no neutral ground. Therefore, there is no area in the world, in thought, in word, or in deed, which is irrelevant, indifferent, or neutral toward God and His demands. There's nothing. The Christian must recognize this fact as he deals with the unbeliever. There's no subject matter that he can discuss which is devoid of bearing upon the religious question of which is free or uh, of religious commitment. Here's how he says it. It's helpful uh, for me when I was looking at it this week. No demilitarized zone exists between the camp of unbelief and the forces obedient to Christ. God owns everything or He owns nothing. Okay? There's no demilitarized zone. Furthermore, he goes on, not only has God created all things for Himself, and not only does He rule over every area of life, but He persistently and universally reveals Himself to all men. He has never left Himself without a witness. No man can, can, can claim excuse me, ignorance of His Creator, for God Himself has made known of him, uh, he has made himself manifest to every man. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Romans 1, 19 and 20. Thus, the Christian should be striving to bring unbelieving thinkers to a full realization of God's extensive claim upon them. So, that's kind of our job as a defender of the faith. We're trying to say, listen, there is no neutral ground. What you need to recognize is that God is over all and through all. Right, and, and and you need to respond to his claim on your life. He owns you. He created you. And and he demands that you follow him. And so you need to to make those demands clear on the unbeliever. Not try to come to some neutral ground. Let's let's say we end up from here. He he finishes by saying, there is no neutral ground between the believers and the unbelievers, but also there's, there is an ever-present common ground between the believer and the unbeliever. What must be kept in mind is that this common ground is God's ground. All men have in common the world created by God, controlled by God, and constantly revealing God. And so in this case, any area of life or any fact can be used as a point of contact. This helps us in trying to show people that God has a claim on their life. We can use any fact, any point of contact, really, to show them that God exists. 
And this is part of the skill of defending your faith. That that um, that you got to work at that really. The denial of neutrality secures rather than destroys commonality. So uh, that last part that I read for you was almost a whole chapter. So I would commend that book to you, and I will commend that to you next month. Um, actually, next week is when we'll we'll start our next book of the month suggestion. All right. So. Hopefully that uh, clears up some of the questions you may have had from last time. If not, uh, do you have any other questions or any that came up as we were looking through that stuff? Greg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, this one, uh, the holiness book should, I'll order that this week. Um, but then, yeah, then we'll offer a new one for next month. All right, any questions on um, the neutrality, the non-neutrality, really, of, uh, of our relationship here in the world? All right, let's begin our study of philosophy with a simple question. Why is philosophy important? You might think of philosophy as a bad thing, like, um, you know, how, how could we possibly study philosophy? It's worldly, vain um, thinking. But but first of all, let's um, let's start with a definition before we get into why it's important. <clears throat> Anybody have any idea of what philosophy is? What's a good definition of philosophy? Okay, good. Code of conduct that drives how you live. Uh, very simply, the word philosophy means study of what. Philos, knowledge, study of knowledge. So, uh, a very simple way to describe philosophy is a worldview. Okay, and as we said last time, uh, as I said last time, you you listened. You you might have said it in your head, but as I said last time, everyone has a worldview. Okay, everyone has a worldview. So, depends on what kind of worldview that you have. And actually, as we're going to see at the end of the class, we we often not just us, but everybody, we draw from a bunch of different worldviews. Um, so we have a Christian worldview. There's a there's a um, there's a modern worldview. There's a postmodern worldview, um, and so there's all sorts of worldviews that we can draw from. But everybody has a worldview. So with that in mind, we could say everybody has a philosophy of life. They have a philosophy about how to think about God, how to think about man, how to think about reality, how to think about knowledge. And that's basically what philosophy studies. It studies all those various aspects. So why is it important? Why is it important that we begin our study of philosophy? And I think the answer is that ideas have consequences. We talked about this last time as well. Uh, Ideas determine how we think, speak, and act. When I was in first grade, I had the idea that I wanted to be liked by these two girls at lunch. First grade. I can't believe I was thinking about girls at that time, but probably not in a um, in a romantic way, but just wanted to make some more friends. Um, and so I put a straw in my mouth with the middle of it in my teeth and took the two ends and put them up my nose and started breathing while they're sitting across the table giggling and laughing. I thought it worked. My philosophy was that if I could get them to laugh, that they would like me. And and I thought my philosophy was, was working until 
Mrs. Pinniger called me out of class and gave me a spanking. That was back when you could do that. Um, for uh, I'm not sure what, but but uh, I got a spanking, and then when I got home, got another one. Um, so ideas matter. Okay, they they determine. I mean, that's kind of a silly illustration, but uh, everything that you do is based on a philosophy that you've developed in your mind, either. Um, Either, either knowingly or unknowingly. And so that's why philosophy is important. I mean, we can think about it on a, a more serious scale with regard to war or, or, um, or with politics or whatever the case. But the point is that ideas matter. Philosophy is important. Um, and, and if philosophy determines what I did when I was in first grade, how much more important is philosophy going to determine what takes place with regard to spiritual things, right? With regard to how we respond to God's Word, how we respond to our spouse, how we respond to other people in our church, and so on. All right. Um, All right, I'm going to have to uh, skip down here to pre- pre-modern worldviews. So we want to look at three worldviews. Um, since the New Testament times, enemies of, Christianity's, uh, enemies of Christianity have employed progressive shifts in strategy to influence and replace uh, a Christian worldview as the correct worldview. Uh, and so in our little overview that we're going to do, we're going to talk about three dominant worldview paradigms that have that have come about, come onto the scene. Um, uh, we'll start start with the first that was the Christian worldview, and we'll call that the pre-modern worldview. And then we'll look at the next two that have come about, uh, called the modern and the postmodern worldview. These are the three major worldviews that you're going to find um, talked about in universities, and that have that have come into our culture, and um, many of them. Uh, the last two we'll see have some anti-Christian ideas, and they start out tend to start out in in the academy and the university, and then they trickle down into society and everyday life. Okay, so first, the pre-modern worldview. Pre-modern worldview. The key philosophers, key thinkers uh, of this kind of worldview. Um, people who thought about the categories of God. Like, who is God? What is reality? What is knowledge? Who is man? What is he like? What is morality? What is history? And so, if we were to think about it in biblical terms, we could say people like Moses helped us to understand who God is, who man is, how man responds to God, what is life, what is the earth like, how are we supposed to respond to various things like that. So, we could say Moses... Jesus, Paul, and and so on. But following that, we have other people that continued um, thinking in this pre-modern sort of way. And and the idea is that God is God is the source of all things. That God is um, that that God is uh, life, and that that from Him come all things. And so we owe ourselves to God. That's the pre-modern. Worldview, and it was actually developed 
or actually thought about some more, maybe not developed would be the best way to put it, because we could say it's fully developed as it's given to us in the Scriptures. I mean, God wrote down for us everything He wanted to know. He wanted us to know about Himself, about man, about sin, about judgment, about um, morality, and so on. Uh, but you had other people that, that came along with the same sorts of ideas and, and actually thought about them some more and, and started to um, uh, think about them in, in different ways. Now, not all pre-moderns are Christians, though all Christians are pre-moderns. Okay? So what that means is you're going to find other people who have a pre-modern worldview that have a similar idea of who God is to you. They may not believe in the true and living God, like, for example, Muhammad. Um, uh, but you're going to find that, or, or Aristotle, for example. But, but the source, it's, it's the idea that, that, that God exists and we are subject, subjected to Him. And the point is that we can share a broad philosophical presupposition with other people, and that's what I was talking about last time. That that what what you're going to find in a lot of unbelievers is they borrow from the Christian worldview, like Thomas Aquinas, uh, Aristotle, Plato, um, Augustine, uh, and uh, so, so some of these people are Christians. Some some of them would have been Christians. Some of them would not have been. Um, the point is that they they believe that there is a supernatural order and that there are absolute standards of moral conduct. Okay, that, That's kind of the key uh, thing that we need to think about when it comes to the pre-modern worldview. There is, there is a supernatural order that, is, that, is, that God exists, or in some cases they believe a God exists, and that there are absolute standards that we can actually say there is an actual right and wrong. And so what you're going to find is that when you come to talk to a Muslim or someone who follows Aristotle, you can focus right away on the question of Christ and the Scriptures. And, and you don't have to go back to the fact that God created the world. You don't have to go back to um, the fact that there is a moral standard of right and wrong. You can take them right to the Scriptures and say, here is the moral standard of right and wrong. Let's look at it. Let's see how Christ has revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures. Um, so the link between the link between the the pre-modern and the modern worldview is Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas is known as the angelic doctor of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, uh, Aquinas did affirm that there are certain truths we learn from nature and certain truths we learn from special revelation. Um, but it was during his time, historically, that the biblical worldview began falling from the unchallenged throne of supremacy that it had, that, that God is and that we must go to the Scriptures to find out what God wants. And so during the 1300s, we start to see a shift away from this pre-modern worldview that says, God exists and there is an absolute standard of right and wrong. And it started moving toward uh, what's known as deism. Deism is kind of the bridge between uh, pre-modern and modern worldviews. Deism is a philosophy that affirms a transcendent creating God, but 
He's not an eminent God. Eminent means close and near. He's the God like the, the watchmaker or the clockmaker who he kind of set the world in order and then he just kind of put it out there and said, have fun with that. Let me know how that works out for you. Okay, not, not a God who is near and who's close and who sent his son into the world to die for the sins of the world. Okay, that's the idea of deism. So, so what you have now is a shift from the time of the New Testament all the way up to 1300. Basically, people were, were under the impression that God existed and that there's an absolute standard of moral right and wrong. Then it turned to the modern worldview um, in the 1300s and beyond. And the main philosophers that you're going to find in the modern worldview are uh, Descartes, Locke and Hume, and Immanuel Kant, and possibly Karl Marx, Charles Darwin, Sigmund Freud. Um, so you have uh, these people who are, when it comes to the study of God, reality, knowledge, man, morality, history, they have a different perspective now. And and you have people who, who believe both in... Um, two different periods of time, the Enlightenment period and the Romantic period. Um, and yet they shared this fundamental assumption that truth is to be found not in God, not in His moral standard of right and wrong, but truth is to be found in man's effort. Not in God's revelation, not in what God has told us, but in man's effort. Enlightenment thinkers looked to human reason. Like if we just think about this some more, that's, that's why I think this, this uh, neutral ground idea is very dangerous. And it, because it really exalts human reason over God's revelation. It said, let's, let's set all these other things aside. Let's try to think about this logically. No, no, we need to come from God's perspective. God has spoken. This is where we start. And yet the modern... Uh, the people with the modern worldview during the uh, 1300s and beyond uh, bought into the idea or developed the idea that it is through man's effort that we come to understand that we come to understand things, human reason. The Romantics uh, didn't think about it so much in terms of human reason, but more in human feeling or human sentiment or human intuition. It, it was all about experience. And so the the commonality between the Enlightenment period and the Romantic period was that they both looked to humanity rather than God. In other words, they exalted man over God. Okay, that that their reason came from their own worldly wisdom rather than from God. And so when you come across someone that has a modern worldview, then you 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 need to make sure that you focus on the doctrines of sin and total depravity. Emphasizing the limitations that we face in finding God and how the fall affected all aspects of our humanity. That's where it starts. It starts with an understanding, a proper understanding of who we are. And we can't understand who we are until we know who God is. That God is perfectly holy and He demands perfect righteousness and He is the judge who will come and, and judge all people or bring all people before Him to be judged. And... So we can't stand before him in our in our uh, in our natural state, right? We we cannot stand before him uh, in judgment. 
there's nothing that we can set up and say, hey, you know, I know I did all these things over here, but but there's a few good things I did here. God's not going to accept that because God is perfectly holy. He demands perfect righteousness. One of the main thinkers during this time was Immanuel Kant. He was from Eastern Prussia. He's um, he argued that we cannot actually know anything outside. And this is where the philosophy starts to get a little bit weird and a little deep as well. And if you want to know more about this, is um, uh, you know, you can, there's all sorts of classes you can take on philosophy if you want to, to get a basic idea of these things. But but he he argued that you can't actually know anything outside of what our mind tells us that we see, feel, hear, taste, touch, and smell and what we can logically deduce from 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 the uh, atmosphere around us. Uh, he says that we're not even able to get past what our minds tell us and say that we know... He, he says that we can't know anything in itself. And as a consequence, Kant believed real knowledge of unseen things like God and the soul would be misleading. In one of his books, Kant said that even though we cannot know God exists, we must assume it for practical reasons. That is, he did not make a metaphysical uh, uh, argument. He didn't try to make an argument for God, but he just said that God has to exist because um, just based on reason, it has to make sense that, that he would exist. And so, In other words, he made a moral argument for God's existence. He basically argues for the Christian God on the basis that he must exist for ethics to be meaningful. If we're going to have an ethical society... Then, then the only way that that can happen if there is a supernatural power. Um, and he says, even though we can't know anything precisely, we can't know it from from feeling, or we can't know, for example, that God exists from feeling or or whatever. For practical purposes, we have to live as if He does exist. And um, so, so basically, Immanuel Kant formed the bridge between the the modern and the postmodern worldview. Okay, Aquinas was the the kind of the 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 one who formed the bridge between the the pre-modern and the modern. And now Immanuel Kant comes along and says, you know, it, it's not it's not um, God's revelation over man's reason. It's man's reason over God's revelation, and we can't actually know that God exists for sure. Well, if you thought that was bad, it gets worse because the postmodern world comes, postmodern worldview comes along, and you have um, some key philosophers like Nietzsche and uh, and Jacques Derrida. He's a French philosopher who came up with the idea of deconstructionism. And in this idea, he argues that there's not even a possibility that we can truly have meaning or understanding in the realm of reality. In other words, there are no realities. There are no absolutes. You ever heard somebody say that? We can't really know. That's what we have now, for the most part, that, that would describe our secular culture. It, it's, an, it's the idea of relativism. We talked about a little bit last time. That, that, what, that, that might be okay for you, but it's not okay for me. We don't have anything that we can agree upon because there are no absolute truths. And when they say that, by the way, they use an absolute truth, don't they? Um, but but they say there are no absolute truths. There's nothing that we can actually be sure about. 
So it's gone a lot farther than saying we have to believe that God exists just for ethical purposes, okay, uh, to, to the fact that we, we can't know anything. And we just kind of all discover these things as we, as we go through life. We kind of come up with our own truth. It's like each person is their, only, their, their little truth finder. And, and you, you each kind of just grab what you think makes sense. And so now it, it just becomes a, a, a melting pot for all sorts of um, crazy philosophies, which, by the way, as Ecclesiastes says, there's not really anything new under the sun. So they're really just rehashing old philosophies. Um, but, but that's the basic idea of those three and, and how they developed over time. So Immanuel Kant came around, by the way, in the uh, 1700s. So that gives you an idea of, of how they've shifted. But what, what we need to know is that, that we're going to be coming across people that have one or a combination of all three of these, basic, these broad worldviews. And um, so let, with, with this in mind, let's move to a conceptual frame, framework um, so that we can, um, we've kind of been up on the, the upper level, okay, kind of looking down on the observation deck of, of basically the broad scope of philosophy and its history. Now we want to come down to the main floor and kind of get, get inside of these and think about, okay, what, what does this look like on a street level and everyday life and how this shows up and, and what we should do about it? Turn to Romans chapter 11. The end goal of this series is worship. It's worship. It's that we want to come into we want to come to a place where we understand God properly and worship him as he desires and we want to get other people to come into that same place. So here in Romans 11, the first 11 chapters Paul's been laying out the Christian worldview literally writing Christianity's first and only inspired systematic theology. And notice what the effect of that biblical theology is. After he lays out this long explanation of who God is, who man is, what sin is, how our relationship to the world, and so on, this is how he responds to it in verse 33. Someone read verses 33 to 36. Okay, this is why we study theology, by the way, okay, because it actually does something for us. It should, it should create in us a desire to love and to know God more. This is what it does for Paul. As he's discussing all this, he, he comes to verse 33 and says, Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. Unfathomable, unfathomable are His ways. And then Paul moves on to application. And that's what... Chapter, chapters 12 to 16 are about. Notice verse 1 of chapter 12, therefore. And then he has this thesis for the whole rest of the book. 
And here it is in summary form, the thesis for the rest of the book. Here's how he is supposed to respond to all this theology. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is what is expected of you. That's, that's the idea there. Verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see the connection here between theology and worship and action and application. Okay, The theology, chapters 1 through 11, the worship, verses 33 to 36 in chapter 11, and then the application. That, in other words, all of our life is worship. That it is that, that our lives are supposed to be lived in worship to God as a, as a holy sacrifice to God. That we give ourselves to God in praise and obedience. So, how can we practically renew our minds as part of our worship? Let me conclude by um, just drawing out a biblical framework in which we can practically think and perceive and understand truth so that we might live in a way that's pleasing to God. Um, I I don't have a whiteboard in front of me and you probably wouldn't like my drawing anyway, so I'll just explain it to you. Um, picture of a tree where you can see below the soil. Okay, See all the roots diving down really deep. And the soil uh, represents the particular worldviews and the philosophies that pervade our American landscape. The soil makes up the ingredients of, of this great society that we live in. These are the inner beliefs, the presuppositions, the, the various worldviews that people draw from in order to, 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 um, to grow and to think. The tree as a whole, okay, above the ground, this represents the individual person, the individual self. That's the average American man or woman. And, and on the tree, there are two main parts, the branches and the fruit. The branches are the disciplines or the components that make up society or, or our culture. No matter what you believe, you'll, you'll find these things in, in all cultures that, that they grow out and take shape based on the soil in which they are. And then the fruit is the outward behavior, how people live, how the average American lives and acts, their, their thoughts, their actions. Okay, From this picture, we, we see that that our worldview can draw from many soils. So these soils could be, you know, one soil could be a pre-modern worldview. And one soil could be a modern worldview. And one could be a post-modern worldview. And, and so what you're going to find is that, in that, is that in the average American, they're drawing from multiple worldviews, both biblical and secular. Sometimes the biblical, they do it unknowingly. They don't even know. They have a code of morality that they've drawn from, not necessarily from looking at the Bible, but God has actually written it on their hearts, Romans 2, 14 and 15. God, God says that, that you know the difference between right and wrong, generally speaking, because God's written that on your heart. Now, obviously, over time, people start to, to, um, to train their consciences in a wrong way, and they have a twisted view of right and wrong over time and so then they what they think is right but if you get down to it you know was the holocaust bad 
Okay, what was the 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 9/11? The things that happened on 9/11 were those bad? And and then, well, where do you get that idea? Who told you that was bad? Right? It, if you believe in evolution, then it's the survival of the fittest. So wouldn't that be, you know, weren't they just doing what they were supposed to do? See how these worldviews kind of break down. This is what I was talking about last time where we kind of go into their house, their worldview, and we knock down some of the furniture and say, that doesn't work. Okay, But, but the point is, is that every single person that you're going to come into contact with have some kind of fruit that show who they are and your job as a defender of the faith, as an apologetic, is to try to determine what that fruit is. Look at that fruit and try to determine the soil in which it resides. And and um, so, if we take the illustration and kind of just take a helicopter above one of these trees, what we're going to notice is that each of these individual Americans is part of a larger forest, Right? Of, of other Americans, and yet they, they all draw from various types of soils. Why? Well, because other people have various backgrounds, right? Some have come, come over from other countries. Some have grown up in various religions that have taught them things. Some watch different programs, whatever the case. They all draw from various types of soils. And yet, so you have this diverse set of trees out, outside in the world in which you live that that is really a melting pot of all sorts of different soils that include pluralism, modernity, religion, and history. And and because of all these forests, you have some crazy fruit that come out. People do some crazy actions and have some crazy thoughts. And our job is to learn to spot the fruit, the spot the fruit, and trace it to its root. We want to become experts in this by being able to learn what kind of presuppositions are driving this fruit growth. What kind of presuppositions do they have in mind when they're, when they're trying to make this claim? And, um, and I think we also need to keep in mind that, that we are one of those trees, right? That, that we draw from various kinds of soils. We might like to think, hey, we only draw from a Christian worldview. And, 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 and I hope that's your goal in life that you're trying to draw just from a Christian worldview as God has revealed Himself to you in His Word. And so you try to saturate yourself with the Scripture as much as possible by being under the hearing of it, by studying it for yourself, by reading it, by reading books about it, and so on. Okay, But, but you have to recognize, I need to recognize about myself, that I myself actually draws from different soils as well. That, that if we are not pursuing... God and His Word, learning from His revelation, we are automatically being shaped by the culture around us. You realize that? Your your children, same exact thing. They are being shaped by the culture around them. And and um, it's it comes by way of news, TV, you know, th- their studies in school. Okay, the the way that you talk to people at work, you just you pick up these things. And you develop a worldview, and a lot of times it's a mixed one. And our job is to try to get our fruit to become as pure as possible, that is, that it's drawn from the right type of soil. Uh, that's why I think Paul says here in chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. The idea is that the world is trying to, to get you to believe its worldview, its secular worldview. 
that God doesn't exist or that, that there are no absolutes. Everything's relative. We can't really know anything. And yet, Paul says, don't be conformed to that. Well, how do we do that? Well, the answer comes in the next line. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that means that we need to keep we need to keep saturating ourselves with the Scriptures. And that leads us to basically our end goal for this entire series, which is worship. It's all about God. It's all about following Him, uh, honoring Him as He deserves. And it's about getting others to do the same. Because God has a claim on every single person's life. They need to recognize that. All right. Any questions? We're not going to have a quiz next time on on philosophy and, and all that fun stuff. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. I I took a philosophy class. I, I had a secular degree. So I took a philosophy class. Well, it's a required class. And, um, and they, they went through the whole history of philosophy. We heard about a lot of these guys. And, um, I mean, they don't, they don't go back to... They tend to start at Plato and Aristotle. They don't talk about Christ or Moses or Paul or anything like that. Um, so there's there's no Christian worldview that's taught, but there's definitely the modern and the pre-modern worldview, and um, and that's where universities are going to be today. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that we can be confident that you exist and that you're a rewarder of those who seek you. And Lord, we seek you with our whole hearts and with our lives today as we come to worship you. Lord, may you be honored in our worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.